Oh, let's get it. Monday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, 2022. Born the battle, brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories, puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. However you listen to Born the Battle, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Facebook, the player inside the blog on blogs.va.gov. Hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. If my math is correct, and I'm a Marine, so that's debatable. Episode 269 is the 134th episode of Born the Battle that I've hosted. So Tim Lawson, my good friend, if you're listening to this, I'm out of virtual tie with you, bud. But Tanner, what, what about the bonus and COVID episodes? Those don't count. They're not numbered in the canon of the history of this podcast. But Tim, I've just got one more to go. If you're listening still, hope you're well out there. Well, part of my gig is paying attention to the analytics of our show. And well, we have had a large influx of new listeners lately. Uh, if you're one of those, welcome to your show. And yes, it is your show. Whether it's VA News, our interview, or our Veterans of the Week stories, Hope you get something out of our time together. And if you'd like to contact me or the show, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts as I respond to all of them here on the Born the Battle. Or if you'd like to be a little more discreet or have a, if you have a nomination for our Born the Battle Veteran of the Week uh, that we do at the end of every show, feel free to shoot an email over to podcast at va.gov. No ratings or reviews this week, but I do want to read one comment that I noticed on episode 266's blog which was the episode that featured the two veterans who are considered the Wright brothers of the U.S. Air Force and CIA drone warfare program. J.E.M. writes, I was a drone analyst from 2005 to 2010. We did OIF and OEF and other various missions. We mostly did direct combat support. I've seen humans do the worst possible things to each other when they don't think anyone is watching. My crew worked hellish hours and we were excluded from combat pay and support. After the military, we are falling between the cracks of the VA system because our role in warfare is so misunderstood by both the DOD and civilians. I still dream in black hot sometimes. I just wish I could tell people what it was like for us, you know, security clearances. JEM, Alec, and Mark did talk about this in their episode. They did talk about some of the things that you do experience. You know, you witness or take part in combat support slash surveillance missions and see things And then you have to go mow the lawn or take kids to soccer practice the same day. You know, as a veteran, you are entitled to VA mental health care. And if they can't get you in soon enough, go and find a private provider if you have the means to. Uh, Lately, I've come to learn that myself, that mental health is just as important as physical health. It's worth investing in and taking care of. JEM, I implore you, if you happen to hear this, to go invest in your mental health, either through the VA or through some other means. It's, it's worth it. Now, there was another veteran that also reached out to JEM in the comments, but I wanted to let him know that there are resources out there uh, from my personal ex- mental health journey. Uh, don't forget that you can comment on our blogs on blogs.va.gov for a time before it gets locked out for additional comments. It's a good place to build a community. I think you're given a week to make comments. If it is locked out, remember that you can still write a review on Apple Podcasts about that episode or Again, you can email us at podcasts at va.gov. Two new VA news releases that I think you'll be interested in. First one says for immediate release. This winter, the Department of Veterans Affairs is participating in the 2022 point in time count led by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. The purpose of the point in time count is to estimate the number of veterans living in America without safe or stable housing. The data collected from the annual pit counts is used to conduct gap analysis and form the basis for distributing the Department of Housing and Urban Development VA supportive housing vouchers to partnering public housing authorities and VA medical centers across the country, with particular focus on areas where vouchers are needed most. So it's very important to get this count to, to know where they can distribute the vouchers. The number of veterans experiencing homelessness in the U.S. has declined by nearly half since 2011, with more than 920,000 veterans and their family members permanently housed or prevented from becoming homeless. Veterans experiencing homelessness should visit their local VA medical center for assistance. To find the nearest VA medical center, visit www.va.gov forward slash find hyphen locations 
And for immediate assistance, contact the National Call Center for Homeless Veterans at 1-877-4-AID-VET. That's 1-877-424-3838. For more information about the VA pit count, go to va.gov forward slash homeless forward slash pit underscore count dot ASP. And for the most recent estimates in the U.S. for homeless veterans, in your Google machine, go to 2021 Annual Homeless Assessment Report Part 1 to Congress, and it will be the first link. Also, our most recent benefits breakdown, Episode 4, Born the Battle, was on the SSVF program. Feel free to go back and check that out as well. Okay, next one says for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs has specially adapted housing assistive technology grants available for fiscal year 2022 to develop new technologies that enhance the ability of seriously disabled service members and veterans to live more independently. VA encourages researchers, organizations, and individuals, technology developers to apply for SAHAT grant funding via grants.gov by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on March 11th to develop specially adaptive housing assistive technologies that will improve the livability of veterans' adapted home. VA issued the Notice of Funding Opportunity in the Federal Register to foster competition among technology developers funding innovation that will best serve the needs of certain seriously disabled service members and veterans. To learn more about this opportunity, I've got some websites for you. First one is benefits.va.gov forward slash home loans forward slash S-A-H-A-T dot A-S-P. That's the grant program overview. Uh, Grants.com is where you need to apply for the specially adapted housing assistive technology grant. And the third one is you know, it's it's a long and convoluted URL, but it's more info. I'll put the news release that talks about this program with that URL at the bottom of this episode's blog and blogs.va.gov. All right. This week's guest started out as an enlisted airman and went all the way to become the vice chief of staff for the Air Force, the number two position in the branch. So from E1 to O10. Incredible. He served on active duty for 44 years, then became the president of the Air Force Association, and he is now the president of the Armed Forces Benefit Association and Five Star Life Insurance. In addition, he is a board member for Whirlpool, yes, the ones that make washers and dryers, as well as Triumph Group and Haynes International. He is also a member of the Defense Business Board, which is a group that provides the Secretary of Defense with independent private sector advice on business management related issues. He is Air Force veteran and retired general, Larry Spencer. Enjoy. General Spencer, appreciate you coming on Born the Battle. Appreciate your time in this. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, started as an, an enlisted airman and, and rose to become the vice chief of staff of the Air Force. It's, it's a career one doesn't come across very often. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, I, I pinch myself sometimes when I think back on it. Um, you know, I was born and raised in uh, Southeast DC. Um, okay. my father was, uh, had, had been in the army. He served 20 years in the army. So I had a familiarity with the military, but it was a little bit different for uh, my family because my father lost his left hand in the Korean war and was stationed at Walter Reed and prosthetics. So we never went anywhere. I wasn't a typical army brat. We, we never moved. We, we, we stayed in DC in for 20, 20 years. years. Never wow. moved. So, and we didn't live near the post. Uh, so I, I was, I saw my father grow up. I mean, I saw my father get up every morning, put on uniform and that's about my ex- extent of familiarity with the military. Uh, but yeah, I, I enlisted, uh, out of high school and, uh, enjoyed it. Uh, and, uh, after about, uh, seven years or so, I completed my degree and went to officer training school and just went from there. What was your, what was your enlisted MOS? Uh, uh it was, I was accounting and finance, if you can believe that. So I was a controller. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's, um, that's interesting. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed that career field. Uh, I later, bre- uh, um, expanded out into logistics, but, uh, I enjoyed finance, enjoyed uh, budget. Uh, so yeah, that, that's what I did. And, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you you really did because we'll get into it. But you wrote a book on on finances and everything. Um, you know, thirty years uh, is usually the max that one can serve in the military. Every once in a while, you would see. You know, 
I, you would hear somebody doing 40 in uniform. I remember a, a, a Marine Colonel did it recently. And I think a Lieutenant Colonel I saw had, had almost got to 40. Um, how, how does one get a waiver, <laughs> if you will, for something like that? Yeah, well, actually, there is no waiver. Um, okay. So, you know, I, you know, 44 years is what I served. And, and oh again, standing here now, uh, that's certainly not what I planned to do. And, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't conscious at all. I didn't realize I had been in 44 years until I applied for retirement. And they told me how long I'd been in. And you you hear about veterans, like they're counting down the day right, and you're, right, and you're right. like 44. Right. Uh, sure? you know, it, it was, you know, again, I did uh, seven or eight years enlisted. And then when I got commissioned, my goal was to, so at that point, you know, I was looking at 20. And so my goal was to, try to make major and retire at 20, which was my goal. But things just kept happening. You know, I got accelerated promotions. I got uh, opportunities to command. And I just decided that, you know, I will ride with this as long as the Air Force will have me. And and uh, they keep giving me opportunities to do more things and giving me more opportunities to lead. I'll take them. But I really and, I, you know, I'm, I'm not joking when I say I, I didn't realize I had 44 years in until, until the end. It, 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 I just enjoyed it that much. And I never thought about the time. That's incredible. That's incredible. 44. Are you, check, the, check the number again. Are you sure it's it is 44? <laughs> <laughs> um, while you were in, sir, um, give me either a best friend or your greatest mentor. Wow. Uh, I've, I've got so many mentors, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, I, I, I think one of my favorite mentors was the, his name is, he just recently, unfortunately, passed away mm. uh, a couple of months ago. But he was a lieutenant colonel at the time, but uh, retired as a colonel, Frank Tuck. And, and the reason I point him out is he was my first supervisor as a second lieutenant. Um, and he just really uh, put his arms around me, uh, uh, put me under his wing and said, you know, I'm going to teach you how to be uh, successful um, and allow you to be yourself. And I'm going to, you know, I- I'm just going to take an interest in you. And he spent an inordinate amount of time with me, um, coaching me, helping me, pulling me aside if I was going in the wrong direction, yeah. um, it, you know, inviting me over his house, my wife and I. I mean, he just... He just went above and beyond as a mentor. So I really appreciated him. And I'll add one more. Uh, When I was enlisted, there's a Chief Master Sergeant Brown. I had a lot of – Chief Master Sergeant is the highest enlisted grade in the Air Force. And I had a lot of chiefs help me throughout my career, both enlisted and officer. But Chief Master Sergeant Brown, (laughs) I'll tell you a quick story. And because you can see me, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination because because this is going to be hard to believe. Uh, but when I when I enlisted back in the 70s, um, you know, long hair was the style. And in the military, you know, as you can imagine, 18, 19 year olds, we were trying to push the envelope to grow our hair as long as we could. And, I, I can't <laughs> imagine that at all. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and back then, I, and I'm not exaggerating, it, as an airman, as an E1, E2, I had an afro like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and it was it was a uh, it was a lot of work to try to pack that thing down during the day to sort of get through the day uh, without it, getting pulled over by it, someone. Did you, and make a long, cover, did you just put the cover on top? Well, yeah. that's, that's part of it. You also, I also put a stocking cap on at night to just press it all down. Uh, <laughs> but uh, to make a long story short, uh, one Monday morning, because I'd had such a busy weekend, I didn't sort of pack my hair down. And so I, I was sitting in my office Monday morning, very early, and scared to death because I knew my hair was a mess. And a chief master sergeant walked by the door, looked in, and kept going. And I sort of wiped my brow saying, man, I got away with that one. And he literally did a Michael, uh, Michael Jackson moonwalk back. And, and he looked in and he said, my God, I mean, what, you know, what, what, F, what, what military are you in? So he, to his credit, he said, Airman, come with me. And so I got up. He wasn't my boss. I, I didn't know him at the time. Yeah. He took me outside. He put me in his pickup truck. We drove over to the barber shop. He, he took me in. He paid the barber, and he said, "Give him a military haircut." And 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 on the way back, he went by the base park, and he stopped his truck, and he and he started talking to me about, "Look, if you're in, look, I, I I get it. I was young once. I understand the fad, and I understand your peers. 
but you're in the Air Force now. And while you're in the Air Force, you know, if you want to get out of the Air Force and grow your hair long, have at it. But while you're in, you need to comply with the with the regulations. And he said, you know, by the way, you seem like a pretty sharp guy. Otherwise, you know, are you are you taking college courses? What are you doing with your life? I mean, are you just coming to work every day? He invested and, in you a little bit. Exactly. And I didn't yeah. have good answers. And he left. We left that park and he drove me to the base education office. And I signed up for college courses on the spot. And from that period forward, he helped me and mentored me through my uh, my bachelor's degree. Uh, but it, there were folks like that all along my career that there's no telling where I would end it up if I didn't have those mentors sort of pulling me aside. It sounds like it was a very um, poignant part of your life because I'm talking to a gentleman now that has multiple bachelors, multiple masters, uh, you know, courses at Harvard. And for, for you to tell me at that point in your life, you're like, I didn't, not, not, a, not, not one college course. No, uh, you um, know, uh, th- no. there are, there are some, and I think this is important as for leaders. Uh, there are some uh, young folks who come out of high school that the light bulb's on, they're ready to go. They either go off to college or they come in the military. I mean, they're sharp from day one. There are others like me who were just a knucklehead, you know, coming in and, and, and I, the, the, the light bulb wasn't on. Yeah. And, and I needed someone to help me. I needed a mentor. And, and fortunately for me, they were there. That's awesome. That's awesome to hear. Um, well, sir, you, you participated in, in Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Thunder, Desert Thought, a lot of deserts. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, like many of, of, of that generation, of our generation, uh, Allied Force, Iraqi Freedom. Um, but there's a lot, like I said, a lot of deserts that a lot of folks don't really know. Everybody knows Desert Storm, you know. Uh, you know, desert shield thunder didn't go kinetic. And I forgive me. I don't really know much about, cause I was, I was a young buck at, sure. at, that, at this point. Sure. But, um, I do remember Fox from, from the time watching it live in middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not, not many, not many know about those two operations. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, one, something I don't talk about, I was on the tail end of Vietnam. So that, that was, <laughs> uh, that was interesting as well. So I've kind of spanned them all, but uh, yeah, yeah. You know, desert, desert thunder, De- desert Fox, those, those were um, uh, fortunately uh, they were uh, potential contingencies that, you know, we didn't have to get into. Yeah. Um, and I remember being a wing commander at Hill air force base uh, mobilizing and getting all the equipment. It was just an amazing thing to watch everyone coming together the airplanes flying in loading up equipment uh and actually literally leaving and then about halfway through it all got called off and everybody came back which is a good thing but i remember one night uh i was the air base wing commander and there was an f-16 commander uh, as a tenant on the base he went he and i were sitting on the flight line it must have been two o'clock in the morning as his F-16s were taking off. And we could, we were sitting there watching the F-16 climb into the dark sky yeah. with the ring of fire coming out of the fuselage because they, they were an afterburner and just looking at each other saying, you know what, uh, th- this is what we're here for. This is what we train for. You know, we, we, we've got our folks, they've been trained. The country has asked us to go off to war and that's what we're doing. Um, so, it, th- you know, those those type of things I will I will never forget. You know, serving the country, not that we ever want to go to war. I don't think anybody wants to go to war, uh, but we are prepared to do so if the country asks us to. And then I was really proud of that. I just remember that as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about that scene uh, with Gunny Highway, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe next time. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, uh, commanded at all levels. Now, uh, if you ask a Marine that's been, you know, enlisted through, through the entire ranks, they'll tell you, you know, either being a sergeant or gunner sergeant was was the two, were the two best ranks. Um, I always like I always like excuse me. I always like asking uh, the similar question a similar question to commanders. Um, what was the best command experience that you had? Because again, you've commanded at every single level. Yeah, uh, well, um, that's a good question because every level I commanded at was great. It, anytime you get to lead people, especially young American military members, it's, it's, it's an honor and it's a privilege. So they were all great. I think though, looking back on it, probably the best was my first command as a young major, a squadron commander in the air force. Uh, it's the sort of basic lowest level of command. And, And the reason that's so significant is because once you become 
a group commander or wing commander, I mean, you're talking about commanding thousands of people. Yeah. You've got other commanders under you that you're working through. But as a squadron commander, you're at, I mean, you're, you're at the, that lowest level and you're still, you know, you to the wing commander looking at you, your commander. Uh, but, but, but also at, at, at the folks you're leading that are looking up at you. In my case, I was a comptroller. So to them, I was their comptroller. Um, uh, and so in, in other words, you, I was, you still hands on. So it's not like you're, you're, you're leading folks through other commanders and through other first sergeants, you're right there hands on. And if that unit goes well, it, it's, it's, it's a direct reflection on your, on your leadership. It's a more intimate experience. I correct. Guess, correct. With, with, it, it was day to day, hands on every day. Uh, yeah. and I, I, I love that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Totally understand that. Um, First Air Force officer to serve as the assistant chief of staff to the White House military office. What is the role of that office? Yeah, great question. And most folks yeah. don't don't even know anything about that. But no, there are a ton of military folks who support the White House. You don't know it because most days they wear civilian clothes. No. Um, and so we wore a suit and tie most days. Wednesday was uniform day. So we wore, I'm not sure why, but we wore a uniform just on because, Wednesday. Just because it makes sure, <laughs> make sure it still fit, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, everything from all the communications, uh, for example, the White House military office was over the White House communications agency, which is over at the uh, joint base Anacostia Bowling, I, I think the name's going to change again soon. They yeah, were I'm, over, I'm, I'm familiar with them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. were over Air Force One. They were over the helicopters down at uh, Quantico. Oh, wow. They, they were over Camp David. They were over the White House staff mess, if you will. In other words, the the the, the restaurant, if you will, in the White House where all the high rollers come and eat the fancy meals. They were all, mili- the military chefs in there. World Chef Rush used to, used yeah, to live. Absolutely. So yeah. it was a great organization. About when I was there, about 1,800 people total. Uh, so mm-hmm. a, a huge organization. Everything, all the presidential movements, the speeches, the, the everything down to the podium, uh, all those things were, were controlled by military. Uh, and so talk about a once in a lifetime opportunity. It was just unbelievable. Uh, experience to, to be there for two years. So you're the chief of staff of that entire office. That's amazing. So so HMX one down in Quantico, mm-hmm. the White House Communications, they all got their tasking from that office. Correct. Absolutely correct. Gotcha. Very yeah. good. Very good. Um, you were also director of force structure resource assessments for the yes. staff reporting. Directly, yeah, J A J. That's the, that's the office. Okay, right, right, right. <laughs> um, reporting directly to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Um, that's a Beltway. Uh, uh, Bill, if I've ever heard one, I mean, just, you, I just think of the plaque that would go on a desk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's um, a good question. Cause I went until you mentioned it. I don't think I could pronounce the title myself. <laughs> so but, long. but looking at that assignment, um, it reminds me of the times that I had to record at the, at the house armed services committee or the, or the Senate armed services committee, uh, budgetary planning. I mean, force structure resources, hearing how many, you know, I was just privileged to be in that, in that room to hear the planning for bullets, beans, and band-aids. Uh, oh, and life cycles of aircraft sure, and ships, carriers, uh, being in that billet, I'm assuming you were in a role where, oh, by the way, you have to convince Congress too, Correct. you know, to spend the money on future threats and assessments. A- based absolutely. On, um, not naming names. There's gotta be a wisdom nugget from that billet somewhere from that time, maybe something that you learn, maybe, maybe there's, cause that's a, such a unique thing to, to be able to have to project planning for the entire force. No, it, it was an incredible uh, job and an incredible experience. I remember the first day on the job and it's a three-star billet. It's first day on the job. I'm a brand new three-star. My first meeting of the day, uh, I go upstairs and the, the person leading the meeting is the secretary of defense and all of the Combatant commanders are in the room. Who was SecDef all, at the time? Uh, it was Secretary Gates. Gotcha. And all of the um, c- combatant commanders in the room, um, all of the service chiefs are in the room. Um, and then, you know, at about 20 minutes into the meeting, because I'm just almost, uh, it's almost like a celebrity to me. I mean, I'm just, I just can't <laughs> believe what I'm, I'm in the room listening to these conversations. About 20 minutes into it, the President of the United States walks in the room and, and starts talking about uh, issues and and, uh, and operations. And so it was an incredible job. But yeah. you're right. For me, it was it was um, 
the culmination, frankly, of, of I think a lifetime career because as a lifetime financial manager, you know, having managed the Air Force budget, yeah. now coming to the J-8 and now managing the budget for the entire Department of Defense and also man- being engaged in the operational portion of the Department of Defense as well. So the J-8 is sort of a combination of financial and operational coming together. Gotcha. Uh, and it was just a wonderful experience. You're right. Looking out five years, looking out 10 years, uh, every year, you know, at least once a week, I was in over in Congress, you know, trying to convince someone uh, that we needed support for things. So it was just an incredible experience. Uh, one that I'm, I'm very, very grateful that the, the chairman of Joint Chiefs gave me an opportunity to do that. And I, and I think the hearings that I was a part of was probably like a culmination of all these little office meetings that you would have. Right. For, for you, what was the best way to win over congressional support for a certain? Do you have a, do you have a, did you have Not, a method? No, that's a great question. And, and actually, I, my method was just being myself. I, I always uh, went in and talked straight. Uh, one of the things they hated was uh, services or people that came over scripted and with talking points and sort of, you know, stay into a script. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times that uh, I went over and the member who I was talking to would just dismiss everyone from the room, close the door and said, okay, let's just talk straight. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I appreciated that because they would sort of be honest with me. Hey, here's what I'm dealing with. You know, here are my challenges. And I would be honest with them. I say, okay, oh, hey, here's what I'm dealing with. Here are my challenges. But, but it, it gave us an opportunity to build trust uh, and recognizing that, you know, those conversations was between just us. And I was trying to do the best I could to uh, support the Department of Defense and get the Department of Defense what they needed. Yeah. And they were doing the best they could to get the information they needed to take our case forward. So it was it was a wonderful experience. And, and building those relationships, I think, is something that I appreciated. Just again, just, you know, folks, you and I, are no different than folks sitting over the hill. They just ran for office and got elected. You and I could do the same thing. That's so we're, we're all the same. It's just a matter of, okay, let's let's put all the politics aside and let's just really talk straight. Now, sir, you, you again, like we, we talked about earlier, you wrote a whole book, uh, a historical review on the financial management yes. uh, during war. Yes. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago, the green eye shades of, of war. Right. I know the financial management during our war, it was, it was the Iraq what, discretionary budget. It seemed like everything went there. It seemed right. like, hey, you know what? Right. We're just going to allocate it to this. Right. Uh, right. How did that, how was that different from other wars? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really not much different. The, okay. the, the, the problem is, or the challenge is most folks don't. And the reason I wrote that book was most folks don't understand one, how important money is to war fighting. You know, it, you can't yeah. go to war without money. Um, you know, when you deploy, uh, you, you think about Desert Shield, Desert Storm, you deploy forward to these locations that don't have anything, showers, food, you, you know, uh, we actually had to buy clay in some cases to put over the sand, uh, food, uh, you know, you have to buy everything. Just the uh, diesel to get over there. That's correct. That's absolutely know. right. Uh, so uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book was just giving appreciation for how critical money is to war fighting. The other reason I wrote it is to give an appreciation for the, the rules on money. The appropriation laws don't go away during a war. So you just can't go over and spend whatever you want on anything you want. And so that was very difficult, keeping the discipline of financial management in a war zone. Because you're right. People go to war. Give me this. Give me that. Give me this. Give me that. You know, we got to win the war. You absolutely do. But the laws governing appropriations don't stop when you go to war. I just remember the term warfighter. I just right, right. went everywhere. Support the warfighter. Um, right. <laughs> um, now you talk about things didn't go away. Uh, appropriation, the, the appropriation law didn't go away, but it right. seems like we did write in certain things to kind of circumvent some appropriation law. Yeah. I don't know if right. the circumvent's a little strong, but yeah, there, okay. there are. For, so for example, uh, there are certain morale, welfare and recreation expenses you can, you can have in a war zone that you can't do back in the States. Um, you know, th- I'll give you a classic example that the GAO actually wrote us up on, but later had to recant because it was, it was, there was a waiver for it. But when we got, you, you may recall when we first uh, deployed to Desert Shield, there was a lot of wait time uh, and the troops were sitting around figuring, okay, what are we going to do here? We're going to fight. We're going to come home. And so the commanders were challenged on how to keep people up and motivated and, and training and so I, I remember one of the specific purchases we made for some of our units were sumo wrestling suits, were, which, were, <laughs> which were a big hit. 
and we bought these sumo wrestling suits and they, they, you know, you put them on and you look like the Michelin man yep. and they put them in a ring and just let them knock each other down for, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes. The troops loved it. Now, back in the States, we couldn't purchase those with MWR, with appropriation. I'm sorry, with appropriated money. We could, we could, we could purchase them with MWR money, but you couldn't use appropriated money to buy that sort of MWR stuff. Uh, in war, you can. Uh, and so that, that kind of thing, uh, you're right, it is legal and it, it is waiver during wartime. Yeah, you're, you're talking my wife's language. She's a contract specialist. I, I, I you know, it's, it's, I, it's amazing to me how some of that stuff works. But I am not in that world whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of rules that you have to follow. It, it all works, yeah. uh, but it's just a matter of just you know maintaining your discipline. You know, just because you're in, in a war doesn't mean your discipline goes away. If anything else, it should be even more strong. It should be stronger. Absolutely, sir. Absolutely, uh, sir. When did you retire? I retired in uh, October of 2015. Okay, uh, I was I was right ahead of you in January of the same year. Uh, what, what did you do the first day you got out? What did after forty four years of wearing a uniform? What was the first thing that Larry Spencer did? Yeah, I I I wouldn't recommend this to others, but I retired on a Friday on Monday morning. I I went to uh, I showed up at work oh, as the president of the Air Force Association. So so my <laughs> my first that my first day retired, I, I went to work. So so you went straight right into right into another career. Why why do you not recommend that? Because I I. I People had recommended to me and I didn't listen to them, yeah. uh, but in hindsight, I probably should have. I think when you retire, particularly having spent 20 or more years in the military, I think it's it's smart to just take a month, two, three months off just to sort of decompress from the military, think through what it is that you want to do with the next portion of your life without the pressure of a job. You know, you've got your retirement pay coming in. So the good news for military folks is generally there's no pressure to go out and get a job the first day. Um, but I think it, it for retirees, for, for retirees, retirees that's yeah. great. Not, yeah, yeah. Not, not just separating, just for retirees. Okay. And I think in hindsight, I, I, I would have benefited from just sort of taking that break, stepping away, going out, sitting in the park, you know, just kind of relaxing for a while, spending time with my family uh, before I jump right into a job. So you didn't hit the contracting beat in DC. I'm surprised, you know, you hear, always hear generals, the next person, it's like, well, then I went to this contractor right, and, then right. I, and then I became the president, but you became the president of the Air Force Association uh, quickly. Um, and I normally wouldn't mention, you know, something like serving as a president of the Air Force Association, but while you were there, you set records, uh, revenue generation, uh, sponsorships, membership growth. Why is it important for service members to join organizations like them? Uh, good question, because uh, and all the services have them. Um, I think they're great because the these are organizations that are nonprofits uh, that can fight for things for their military service and uh, and provide professional development for members of the military, yeah. which is a big part of what they do. I also want to touch on your board memberships. Uh, one of them is the Whirlpool Corporation, yes. uh, like the washing machines. Exactly. Um, <laughs> largest, <laughs> largest, largest appliance company in the world. You got them, uh, you got them supporting barracks contracts. What do you got? Go <laughs> you know, you know, barracks need a new washing machine right, like right, once right. a week. Yeah, actually no, yeah. but, but, um, but yeah, it's uh, one of the things, and that's one of the other reasons I think it's good to uh, sort of separate yourself after you retire because in a sense, um, when I went to the air force association, uh, I didn't really get away from the Air Force and, and or the military. Yeah. And I think I needed to do that, uh, which is why I, I appreciated being on the board, particularly one like Whirlpool. It has nothing to do with the military. Yeah. Uh, it, and I've learned so much work, uh, being on the board there. I've learned more about washing machines and, 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 uh, and dryers and, and stoves and refrigerators than I ever thought I would, would know. But it, it's a fascinating business. It's a, it's a fascinating company. And the thing that surprised me was, you know, you, everybody in the military says the same thing. You know, well, in the military, we had this camaraderie and we had the integrity and you can't find that on the outside. It, I found that just not not to be true at all. Oh, really? I mean, the folks in, in Whirlpool, as an example, as they are in the company I'm with now, their yeah. integrity, their camaraderie, the commitment is is just as strong as it was in the military. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I was amazed. Uh, I one of my first visits when I uh, got on the Whirlpool board 
was to their washing machine plant in Clyde, Ohio. And I walked into this plant and they make 22,000 wash machines a day. Think about that. I had no idea there was that much demand for washing machines. Right, right. But, but the, the technology, the robots running around, the commitment of the people there, those folks came in there every day uh, dedicated to absolutely putting out the best product they could. And I, I was just blown away. I, you know, I, again, I, I thought that only existed in the military and it, and, it, and that's just not the case. Interesting. Super interesting. Um, why did you say you said it was important? You think it was important to get away from the military for a little bit and that you weren't able to do that, but you recommend that. Why? Again, the, the I, military, agree with you. I actually agree with you on you know, that. I think the military yeah. is great. And I enjoyed every day of the four, four years I was there. Yeah. Um, but, um, there's more, this is just my opinion now, there's yeah. more to life than the military. Uh, yes. th- this, is, this is a big world. Yes. Uh, and our country offers a million different things, a million different opportunities. And when you devote your most of your adult life to one of those, yeah. uh, it, I think it, I thought it was important for me to go experience some of the other things that were out there. Sure. Uh, and it has been a great experience for me. I think for, I, I, I totally agree with you because that's the first thing I did is I – I separated myself from, I wanted nothing to do with the government, nothing to do with the military. I separated myself for about three years. And I think from a psychological perspective for me, um, you know, it, your memories romanticize. Correct. If if you you go, so you remember the good things. Right. Exactly. If if you step away and and it it leaves, I think for me, for me, it left a better taste in my mouth. Right. When I, and I was ready to come back. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Um, finally, let's, let's talk about where you're at right now, sir. Um, you're, you're the president for the armed forces benefits association yes. and, and five-star life insurance. Yes. Um, how did you get approached for that role? And, and, and back to the, um, to the boards, how do you get approached for those roles as well? I'm curious. Yeah. Great question. Uh, yeah. I get that question a lot. So, uh, boards are interesting because they are, uh, very prestigious, uh, opportunities, uh, you, you know, there's no, you know, you don't write a resume and mail it into a board. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. So there's several ways. The, the most effective way, quite frankly, is uh, word of mouth and networking, knowing someone else on boards that know you and know your capability. Obviously, there are headhunter companies that that also help place people on boards. Uh, but yeah, getting on a board is uh, uh, it, it's it's a real honor, but it is very difficult. First of all. The retirement age on a board has steadily increased. I think at one time it was 68, went to 72. A lot of them are 75 now. Wow. And so there's not a lot of turnover uh, on boards. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so to, to secure one of those positions is, is really um, uh, really an honor. And, and, and it's a really fascinating thing to do to, to be at the strategic level of a company uh, and to help them be, try to help them be successful. To your military experience, I'm pretty sure your logistics background for something like Whirlpool. Yes. You probably recognize that. Yes. But general, more general than that, though, is just just leadership experience. You know, everything, you know, you were in the military, it all boils down to leadership. And so, uh, so that, that, I think that's a part of it as well. Sure. Now, in terms of the uh, Armed Forces Benefit Association and Five Star Life Insurance Company, just quickly, AFBA was started back in 1946, uh, oddly enough, uh, instigated by President Eisenhower. And the first office was actually in the basement of the Pentagon. And the reason it was stood up was because in World War II, a lot of soldiers that were being killed, the insurance policies would not pay because they had war clauses that said, if you die in war, we won't pay you. Wow. Uh, and by the way, they, and so. That's uh, incredible. A, absolutely. So AFBA was created as a company to provide low cost term insurance initially to military members with no war clause. And now we've expanded that to no, um, no terrorism clause. And we've also expanded for not just the military, but to first responders as well. Um, and so, yeah, we, um, we really are, uh, it's a privilege to work here and serve those who serve our nation by taking care of them. And, and, and perhaps the worst period that at the worst time that something can happen to a family, we pride ourselves in stepping in and, and, and living up to the promises that we make them. Wow. Uh, so first responder, so not only military, first responders, um, what about like federal agents? like Safe, yeah, Federal employees, gotcha. federal contractors, all of their families, that sort of whole group um, uh, of folks that really, that, that, that support our country. 
uh, you know, that's what we we're here for and that's what we stand for. Gotcha. And, and the only reason I, I said D is because I, I was just thinking of uh, Joe Peck, one of my recent interviews that, that was just dropped, you know, a couple months ago from, from this drop here. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned him, I was like, Hey, you know, your episode's out. Congratulations. Uh, I hope you get some good feedback. And he's like, yeah, not the best week because we just lost two agents. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes, and, and yeah. And so, you know, hearing that. And then, so immediately when you're talking about who we support, I immediately went to them, Sure. Um, you know, uh, so this isn't that life insurance in the Jacksonville mall that as a young right. man, I was told to be wary of or anything. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> no, absolutely not. In fact, most of our agents, uh, they go out and talk about our benefit, the benefit of life insurance that we offer through AFBA are, are former military folks. Most of them former enlisted. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, and by the way, you know, just to be clear, you know, a young enlisted member, as an example, who has, uh, SGLI, we don't we don't want to go sell to them. They, they're okay. We 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 don't. So we aren't trying to take advantage of anyone. We we want to sell uh, low cost. Uh, we want to offer the benefit of low cost of um, uh, term life insurance to those that need it. And, yeah. and that's kind you're of seeing, what we're you're, about. See, you're seeing a gap. Correct. You're seeing the gap. In, there, there, in, there's a huge gap. Yeah. Um, you know, almost fifty percent. By the way, fifty percent of families don't have life insurance, which mm-hmm. is unbelievable to me. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's, we are trying to fill that gap and we're trying to connect with as many people as we can to provide that support. But again, it's not, it's, it's not like we're just an insurance, you know, offer the, the benefit of insurance. We, we, uh, we pride ourselves on, we're not going to walk away from you when, when things get rough. Uh, you know, if there's a war, we're not going to raise the rates. We haven't raised rates. Yeah. Uh, we're going to, we're going to stick with you. And so that's, that's kind of who we are. Very good. Very good. Um, now you're making me wonder about my war clause. Yes, I, can, uh, I, I, can, I can hook you up with a, with a former enlisted agent and he can tell you guy. all about it. This guy. Um, okay, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> as a financial, I mean, finances have been a major part of your life, major part of your career. Uh, com- and, and, and looking at your entire career, that's, that's what I see, uh, especially in the role that you're in now. So I look at that and I'm thinking compound interest golden rule of 12%. Uh, for someone that has worked in finances his entire career, how important is financial literacy oh my in, t- in today's world? Oh my goodness. I, I can't tell you how important that is, particularly now as the military has transitioned to a blended retirement system yes, and 401k. Yeah. Uh, that was the first thing I said when they, I was in the Pentagon when that program was being developed and I kept pounding the table saying, hey, okay, but we have to get training out there for people yeah. so they understand exactly how to manage because no one teaches them that. You don't learn it in high school. You don't learn it in basic training. We're, we just expect military people to somehow understand how to manage finances, and, and, and a lot of them don't. I was just lucky that a math teacher brought in an Edward Jones investor into my high school my senior year and taught me the basics of these, but – I know that that was the exception, not the rule. When I was a kid uh, over in Southeast, I was an awful student and the schools weren't very good. Um, but for some reason, there's one story that my teacher read out loud to us that stuck with me. And it was the story of the ant and the grasshopper. Uh, and I, it's Aesop's fable. Yes, sir. And, and w- again, without going into a, a, a lot of detail, you know, this grasshopper was out playing around, playing his fiddle during the summer, criticizing the ants for gathering food for the winter. Of course, winter came, the ants were in great shape, and the grasshopper was not. Yeah. And I don't know why the theory of compound interest stuck with me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I couldn't recite my multiplication tables, but I, but I had a bank book. You know, I was always a worker when I was a kid, with yes, the, looking at the examples of my father and my grandfather. And I, I was a paper boy for the Washington Post. Uh, I shoveled snow. I washed cars. One of the best jobs I ever had was, and, and you're not, you may not believe this, I was one of those guys in D.C., hanging on the back of a trash truck, riding through the neighborhood, throwing the, throwing the trash up on the back of a trash truck. I did everything. And I would come back and I would put that money in my bank account, little savings account. And wh- it, it, it was just amazed to me. You mean I can put money in and they will add money? You got to be kidding me. <laughs> uh, again, I, I don't know why that stuck with me, but that, that really uh, was impactful in my entire life. It, you know, and that's my uncle helped me in that similar situation when I graduated. Uh, it was like one of the fun, it's funny how interest rates change and, and you're talking about an interest rate back in you know your day. I, I remember I, the tail end of when savings actually paid 
um, you know, three real, real interest, right? Real interest. Right. Uh, you know, you're, you're a man that's, that's looked at finances big and small, uh, someone that's always looked at five, 10 years down the road. And I know your focus is different than mine. Um, but where are you at your estate stage of, of investing? Where, where, where are you putting your money in, sir? Well, that, well, <laughs> short term, long term. What are you doing? Market, real estate, gold? Well, uh, here's the deal. Um, investments change based on your age, yes, based on where you are in your life. And so as you're younger, you want to invest more in the stock markets because, you know, Stocks are going to go up and down, but over time, they're going to go up. We all know that. The numbers don't change. And so you want to put your, your money into stocks and, and take a little more risk when you're younger. As you get older, you want more of your money to be liquid so you can get your hands on it when you need it. Exactly. And, and, and at that point, you're less interested in building more wealth. And then uh, you sort of transition to keeping the wealth that you have. Yes. Uh, and so it, it depends on where you are in your life. Um, you know, and, and how you want to invest, whether it's in bonds, uh, whether it's in, in other other instruments, but but it, it's not rocket science. Uh, you you just have to get out there and get yourself educated, uh, and you know, and and programs like you know that the military has to invest in uh, are great. Uh, they don't, you know, the fees are really low, and and they have you know this big mutual fund, if you will. Yeah, I, I would recommend I- anyone in the military. You know, if you're what's thrift savings plan, I think it's called TSP. Yes, sir. Yeah, if you're not in, in, in if you're not in that, you should be because that, yeah. that's a great program. Yeah, and I th- and even federal federal service workers correct have TSP now. Um, right. No, exactly. And and I, I always say if you're a younger person, get the get the Roth, get the Absolute, Roth. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, but is there a good investment opportunity that you're seeing that maybe not anybody else is kind of looking at um, in, in an investment sector that investment sector that maybe no one else is kind of looking at you're kind of interested in? Um, I would say yes and no. I, I, what I try to do is, because uh, I'm certainly not going to name any, anything here. <laughs> He's <laughs> you, like, that's my secret. Yeah, yeah, you, can call, <laughs> you, you can call me later. Uh, but, yeah, gotcha. um, but what I try to do is stay in tune to what's going on around me. As an example, um, year and a half ago, two years ago, the pandemic's cranking up. We're talking about this vaccine and I'm thinking, okay, a lot of people are going to invest in, you know, those, those vaccine companies. Uh, at that time, no one knew that sort of all of them would come out and be prepared. At that time, everybody thought they would be like one winner yeah. and people were trying to guess which winner, which one would be the winner. But what I thought about was, okay, I'm going to, I'm not going to get into that guessing game, but what about all of the industries that support vaccines? Uh, you know, the, the syringes that you, you inject people with, you know, all of those things, yeah. the, the shipping of the, the, the containment of all that cold, you know, Pfizer vaccine, what kind of companies are, are support that? So that's what I try to do. A lot of cases is think about, okay, what's going on out there that everybody's chasing, you know, right now, for example, space is huge with all the, with all of the, uh, with the space force standing up with, the people getting, you know, able to take a ride, taxi ride now to space. Yeah. Um, but, and, and everybody's focused on space. What I'm thinking about is what's around that, that, that supports them, that they're going to be there no matter what, um, you know, who makes the boosters, you know, who, you know, who's, who supports all of those, those, that ground operation. Yeah. Um, so again, I'm, I'm not an expert on investment, but that's the sort of thing that I try to do. That's your strategy. Is, is not just look at the, shiny object but look look at what's supporting that shiny object find the roots exactly find, find the roots. Exactly. very good very good so appreciate that um <laughs> uh sir what's one thing that you learned during your time in service that you apply to what you do today um if you were to pick one thing i sure. know there's many things yeah there are many things i think if there's one thing i would pick it would be never forget who gets the job done, uh, and that's people. And in particular in the military, <clears throat> uh, I never lost my focus on the enlisted force. The, <clears throat> you know, the enlisted force, they, that's the group that scares our adversaries. They're the ones that fight the wars. I, I don't care what service you're in. Um, it, you know, th- not many airplanes are going to take off, you know, with no gas or no parts on them yeah. um, and, or satellites or you name it. 
um, you know, tanks don't drive themselves. Um, so, uh, or, or, you know, drones don't fly themselves. I mean, there's someone doing that. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I really learned in the military, particularly as a commander and particularly during my enlisted time was that our enlisted force uh, is the most, are the most critical group in the military. And I tried to bring that same mentality when I left the military yeah, I have senior leaders and executives and, you know, they all want to do training and they all want to go up and be a CEO. I got it. But who day to day is getting the job done? Yeah. And those are the people I try to get around to and pay most attention to. You talked about drones uh, before your episode in our archives. There's a, there's two gentlemen that came up. Basically, they're the, the, the right brothers of the drone program. Oh, like wow. Putting the missile on the drone. Right, right. Good stuff. If you get a right. chance, check that out. Um, so, sir, has there been a, a veteran whom you've worked with in the community or, or veteran nonprofit uh, that you've had an experience with other than the, the ones that we've mentioned that you'd like to, that you would also like to mention? Uh, it's a gentleman. His name is uh, Roy uh, Johnson. He's in his mid nineties, lives over in DC. Um, he was, I'll just try to condense this. Sure. Absolutely. sir. Okay. He joined the army right off the, off sharecropper as a sharecropper. He was in, he was pressed into the Korean war as soon as it started. He was, he was an ambulance driver. He, he, he was tasked to go up near the front line to bring back some, some patients. He, this was early in the morning before the sunlight had come out. He drove up to a checkpoint, which he thought was a checkpoint, happened to be an enemy tank. Oh, enemy oh. soldiers piled out of the tank. He put his left hand on the Jeep steering wheel, right hand down on the gear shift to, uh, to get the heck out of there. And they sh- fired at him, took his left hand literally off the steering wheel. He fell off on the ground. Soldiers came over, looked at him, kicked him, fired three point blank rounds at him. As far as he can remember, two of them missed because one went into his shoulder went down near his heart, and he was laying there literally feeling blood pool in his chest. But he sit there, he, he laid there silently. They kicked him again. He didn't move, so they left. And after about 15 minutes, he got up. He gave himself a shot of morphine. He managed to get himself back in the Jeep and drive back. Of course, he then he was unconscious for a while. They sent him to Japan, sent him back to Walter Reed for recovery. They ended up amputating his left hand. That that gentleman is still living over in DC. No, no, no one knows about his story. And the only reason I mentioned Roy Johnson is there are a ton of Roy Johnson's out there that we run across in Walmart and Costco in the commissary, in the BX and the PX and the, and the Marine Corps exchanges. We see, we, we see them on the Metro uh, in the airport and we never know their stories. Uh, I would ask everyone, you know, go find veterans and talk to them and ask them about their story because there are incredible stories like that out there that no one knows about. And I'm afraid a lot of times our society doesn't have an appreciation for the sacrifice that veterans have given for this country. They just sort of take it for granted uh, because we don't talk and they because they won't talk about it. They aren't looking for any credit. Uh, but so you have to seek them out. Um, and so I would encourage everyone sort of. Um, Re-energize yourself to recognize veterans anytime you can and go talk to them and, and, fe- and figure out what their stories are and then tell their stories, broadcast their stories for everyone to hear. That's that's the point of this podcast. And I appreciate you. That's outstanding. Uh, wow. Um, give me his number. Let's, let's see I will. If, we could, if we could do something with him. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I will. I've got pictures of him. Uh, he, I, wow. I, I happen to, that's I know a story. Yeah, no, he's a great guy. Um, well, sir, we've covered a lot of ground and, and actually a relatively short amount of time, which I, uh, is great. Um, is there anything that I have missed? Uh, maybe a parting shot at being uh, there's veterans uh, that, that mainly listen to this podcast, uh, VA employees. Is there anything that you'd like as a, as a parting shot to them, a piece of wisdom? I, I don't know. I wouldn't call it wisdom, but I, I you know, the, the, the heroes of our country are, are veterans and they – have protected our country since its inception, and they continue to stand on the front lines protecting our country. 
Um, you know, as you and I are standing here talking now in our safe spaces, there are military folks out somewhere in harm's way. Um, and I, I just want to thank all the veterans, uh, all those who have served and continue to serve, because you all are the true heroes of our country. So just thank you so much for your service. Appreciate that, sir. And with that, we are out. Have a good okay. one. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Good luck to you. The VA does a very good job on the medical side. I don't know of anybody that has any complaints. My primary care doctor is probably the best doctor I've ever had in my life. He was one of my friends, good patient of mine. He only comes once a week, but I enjoy, I enjoy him. She really comes in special. Yes, early I in the morning. Early in the morning. That's exactly why I choose VA. Choose VA today. Visit VA.gov. I want to thank the good general for coming on and sharing his story. For more information on General Spencer, you know, if you put his name in the Google machine, there's all kinds of stuff out there. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is by way of Army.mil, but you could find an article about Sergeant First Class Alwyn C. Cash in many places as he is one of the most recent Medal of Honor recipients. Sergeant First Class Alwyn C. Cash grew up in poverty in Avedio, and I hope I said that right. Florida, and joined the U.S. Army as a supply specialist shortly after graduating from his high school. He initially served two years in Korea, followed by nearly three years at Fort Lewis, Washington. In 1993, he became an infantryman and served another year-long tour in Korea. Cash then served as a squad leader for two years at Fort Hood, Texas, and for two years in Germany. He graduated from drill sergeant school in 1998 and served over two years as a drill sergeant at Fort Benning, Georgia. He returned to Europe in February of 2001 as an operations non-commissioned officer, the 19th Battlefield Coordination Detachment, then served in Germany for two years as squad leader in the 1st Battalion, 18th Infantry Regiment. Finally, in April 2004, Cash served as a platoon sergeant in the 3rd Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division at Fort Benning, Georgia. Cash deployed in support of the Gulf War in 1991, participated in the 2003 invasion of Iraq, and deployed in 2005 in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. His Medal of Honor citation reads as follows. Sergeant First Class Alwyn C. Cash distinguished himself by acts of gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty while engaging with the enemy in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom on October 17, 2005, near Samara, Iraq. Cash was conducting a nighttime mounted patrol when the Bradley fighting vehicle he was in charge of was attacked by small arms fire. An IED, an improvised explosive device, disabled the vehicle, causing it to become engulfed in flames. After exiting the vehicle, Cash began to extract the trap driver from the vehicle. After opening the hatch, Cash and a fellow soldier pulled the driver out, extinguished the flames on him, and moved him to a position of relative safety. While doing so, Cash's fuel-soaked uniform ignited, causing severe burns to his body, but he continued toward the rear of the vehicle to help other soldiers who were trapped in the troop compartment. At this time, the enemy noted Cash's movements and began to direct fire on his position. When another element of the company engaged the enemy, Cash seized the opportunity by moving into the troop door and aiding four of his soldiers to escape from the burning vehicle. Afterwards, he noted two other soldiers had not been accounted for and he re-entered the burning vehicle to retrieve them while still on fire. Despite the severe second and third degree burns covering the majority of his body, Cash persevered through the pain to encourage his fellow soldiers and ensured they received the needed medical care. When the medical evacuation helicopters arrived, he selflessly refused to board until all of the other wounded soldiers were evacuated first. Unfortunately, Cash died from his wounds sustained in this action on November 8, 2005, at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. His heroic actions at the cost of his life saved the lives of his teammates. Throughout the entire engagement, Cash repeatedly placed himself in extreme danger to protect his team and to defeat the enemy. Cash's extraordinary heroism and selflessness beyond the call of duty were in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and reflect great credit upon himself, his unit, and the United States Army. Cash is survived by a spouse, Tamara Cash, his daughters, and his son. Originally a Silver Star, this action was upgraded to the highest honor 
on December 16th, 2021, 15 years later. Army veteran Alwyn C. Cash. We honor his service. Ready. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a future Born the Battle Veteran of the Week so we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, the VA's Facebook page, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song, and was written by Marine veteran Mark Milkilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Have a great day. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Fire bullets fly to my brain. Simplify till we're done. Another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Made bullet in my back Raining down lead Punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down Cover the machine Bullets fly in that brain Simplify do or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load Oh, 331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one As you know, I was uh, Born and raised in D.C. Uh, Southeast. Um, one of the things uh, that I used to do, uh, or I felt very fortunate to have done, was my grandfather had a farm down in uh, southwest Virginia, uh, about 20 miles south of Appomattox, Virginia, a little town called Red House. Nothing out there, middle of nowhere. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm close to I'm close to Appomattox. I don't oh, know really? Well, oh, I'm in, wow. I'm near Fredericksburg, so. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. But I don't I don't even know where Red House is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, nobody else does either. Um, and so, uh, I would go down there in the summers uh, and work on the tobacco fields with my grandfather. I hated it at the time. You know, I'm a city guy. You know, I don't want to get up at five thirty in the morning working tobacco fields. But um, it 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 ended up being um, a really great experience for me in hindsight. So uh, one summer in particular, though, I went down and my cousin who always who who used to join me there, my, who, was, who was my same age, he was up in Philadelphia with his mother. So he wouldn't join me for another two weeks. So it was just my grandfather and I. Mm. And our routine was every morning I'd feed the hogs and I have several things to do. Then we jump on a tractor. He had a little platform on the back. I would jump on. We ride out to one of his men in tobacco fields, worked tobacco until it got too hot, and then we'd come in. This particular day, he said, we're not going on a tractor. We went to his barn. He backed out this huge farm uh, horse, hooked up a platform to it, put a plow on the platform. I got set down on the back of the platform, and we off we went with the behind the horse to a field. So we get out there, and I've never seen anything like this. I'm from Southeast D.C. <laughs> um, so... Uh, he hooked up this horse to the plow. He got behind the plow, saw plowing these perfectly straight rows. <clears throat> and I, again, I'm just fascinated by all this. Yeah. Um, and so about halfway through, and I'm just sitting on the ground playing in the dirt watching him. So, cause I'm nine, 10, 11 year, years old. So uh, about halfway through, he decides to go take a potty break in the woods. 
And I'm sitting there watching that horse, watching that plow, thinking, man, how hard can that be? Uh, and so I, I thought to myself, I'm going to impress my grandfather. I'm going to get behind this plow and I'm going to continue working, save yeah. him some work. Yeah, right. So I walk up to this plow. The plow is bigger than I am. I managed to pull it up upright. And I don't know how much you know about horses and plows, but anyway, it's all connected through something called a single tree and all that. But I get the reins behind me and I knew the command to make the horse go forward. So the horse, I gave the command, the horse starts walking. The problem is the horse is cutting diagonally across my grandfather's perfectly plowed rows. <laughs> and, and, and let me pause here for a second. And, and I don't advocate this at all. So I want to be clear <laughs> to your audience. I don't advocate this, but Clearly. Back, back, back in those days, you could whip your kids. And, and, not, <laughs> and, and not only could you whip your kids, but on a farm, nobody would know anyway. And if they knew, they would encourage it. So I'm thinking, oh, my God. And, he, and I, he'd never done that to me before. But I'm thinking, oh, because he's going to really be mad because I'm ruining a day of a half day of work for him. Yeah. And about halfway through messing up his rows, I think to myself, I knew the command to make the horse go forward. I don't know the command to make the horse stop. That wasn't going to be my next question. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I knew you, I knew you right. said it that way for a reason. Exactly. So I'm scared, and I'm running to keep up with this horse. And my grandfather runs out of the woods, and he yells out. He says, Larry, what are you doing? And it's, and, and picture this. Uh, I'm, I'm barely keeping up. I turn around to see my grandfather and kind of walk, you know, going sideways, and I stumble and almost fall. And when I catch myself, I instinctively say, whoa, whoa. And of course, the horse stopped. That was, <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, so now I'm standing there, my grandfather's storming across the field, and I'm thinking, okay, this is not going to go well. And so my grandfather came up to me, and he said, well, and this wasn't very articulate, you know, and, and it wasn't the way I would have stated it, but he said, well, he said, it's okay to try and fail, but it's not okay not to try. And so what he was saying to me was, look, I'm proud of you for trying. And by the way, your entire life is going to be just like you and I out here on this field plowing this horse. You're going to have opportunities and you're not going to know exactly how to do it. And you're going to be scared and people are going to tell you, don't, you can't do it. Go try anyway. And, and by the way, if you fail, get up and try it again. And that's something that st stuck with me my entire life. Uh, that, you know, imagine a 10-year-old boy at, on, in the middle of nowhere walking behind a, a, a horse that I couldn't figure out how to, how to maneuver to get a lesson like that that yeah. has guided my entire life, uh, which is uh, really something amazing for me. Grandpas are the best. 